Welcome to Reveal Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. I had tried to cut this sermon down and not put all three parts in it, but I'm going to reach back and get all three out, and maybe we'll be through by the time the music starts tonight, and y'all get happy between now and then. If you're not happy, I'm going to keep right on preaching, if that's a clue to you this morning. If you would, how about take your Bibles and reach to the book of Ephesians with me. Turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. I think this should be a familiar passage to you as we started here. I think it was the very first Sunday in January, the second Sunday in January. We started in the book of Ephesians, if you remember. And we did that because this happens to be the book that gives us the doctrine of what it means to be a Christian, how you were saved, and then it gives us application to that and specifically in reference to the church, because as this is written, it's written in mind that, that God gathered together those of his own and he made them into one body, that one body of Christ. And we're a part of that here at Morris Creek Baptist Church. And, and this morning I intend to talk to you about the guarantee of inheritance. And I thought it was really neat the way uh, Kay had that song this morning, talking about heaven and our inheritance in heaven as she sung about that this morning. So so we're going to look at uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and if you would, how about stand with me, and we're going to pick up in verse 11, and we're going to read down through 14, and I have no idea that we'll get that far, but I'm going to put it in your head. So starting in verse 11 of chapter 1, and it reads like this, it says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to his praise or to the praise of his glory. In him you were also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In him also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of your inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Father, this morning we have read your word. Now I ask that you take that word and you make it alive. You use me to present the gospel that you would have presented this morning, Father, in such a way that it touches the hearts that are gathered here, not for my glory, not for the glory of this church, but for yours alone. You stir the hearts of those that are gathered, both saved and unsaved, and you work as you see fit, because your will is perfect. This we ask in the name of our precious Son, or your precious Son, Jesus Christ, and our Savior. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So where have we been? I told you that uh, this section from verse 3 to verse 14 is the longest uh, sentence in, in the book, uh, in, in the New Testament actually. We put periods and we put commas and we put different things in it to make it readable for us. But when Paul wrote this, he started in verse 3 back, if you remember, saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he didn't take a breath or put the quill down, put the pen down at all until he wrote to the praise of, the glory, of his glory in verse 14. He made one sweeping statement about how good God was, how blessed God was, and he rolled right into how God had blessed him and us through his son Jesus Christ. And he rolled all the way to the end of this section when he ends with the praise of God's glory. So he starts with the blessing of God's glory and he ends with the praise of his glory. And sandwiched in between those two things are us. It's us and what God has done for us. And we've looked at back in verse uh, 4, we studied a few weeks ago, about four or five weeks ago, the doctrine of election, if you remember, the doctrine of election, where God chose. He chose or elected us before the foundation of the earth, before you were ever born, before anything about you ever existed. God looked down through eternity and chose you. 
We move from that doctrine of election to the doctrine of justification, which was the next big word that we use there. And that's where God justified us. He did that through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. He did that, that we might be holy and blameless before him. He didn't do that for us. He did that for himself, that we might be holy and blameless. Remember what I told you justified means. Nice and easy to remember. It's just as if I'd never sinned. He did that. Through his son, Jesus Christ. We move from election to justification to the doctrine of predestination. If you remember, we talked about it briefly. Where God predetermined, that's the way we would use the word today instead of predestined. But he predetermined that we would be adopted into his family. He adopted us into his family. Why? Because we were saved by his son. So it's again, through his son, we were adopted into his family. We were adopted into have all the inheritance That Jesus has. And we talked about Jesus being called the blessed one. The only one in the Bible that God looks down and says, my blessed one. So all that God blesses us with, all that God has to bless, he has placed in his son, Jesus Christ. We're in his son, Jesus Christ, also because of our salvation provided through him. And we're adopted into the family to inherit those things that he inherited. Verse 5 tells you about that. And it tells you that that it was done. For the good pleasure of God's will. Again, not for us, for Him. Are you starting to see a pattern? Are you starting to see a pattern? We move then from that doctrine of predestination to the doctrine of of redemption, if you remember. Talking about being redeemed. You may say, well, that's sort of the same as being justified. Well, no, it's not. Redemption, if you remember, was where He purchased us from that slavery of sin. You know, so many people think that you are making your own choices and you're doing your own things. And yes, you may be making choices outwardly, but you're controlled by something inwardly. And the Bible tells you pretty plainly, you're either under the rule of the the ruler of this world, Satan, or you're under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And those are your two choices. There is no middle ground. There is no place that says, I'm under the control of Roger, because that doesn't happen. What happens when I fall back to my choice, as I want to say, that choice becomes Satan's because we're controlled by one or the other. You can see it plainly in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Satan took control of the will of Adam and Eve, and they did the one thing that God told them they shouldn't do. And now they were no longer under the lordship of God, they were under the lordship of Satan. And because of that, sin, death, entered this world. We inherited that. The Bible tells us we have all been born in that sin. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So when we come into this world, we're under the dominion, under the guidance of Satan, so to speak. And we're headed down that road that leads to hell. Because there is a very real hell. Just as real as there is a heaven, there is a hell. And we're headed there. But God stepped in and redeemed us out of that and placed us under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And now our destiny is that heaven that we heard Kay sing about, that inheritance of of heaven. And he did this by a really neat word that you should always remember. It's a word called grace. God's redemption at Christ's expense is the way some remember that. God's redemption at Christ's expense. Grace is given to you the thing you don't deserve. Mercy is not giving you what you do deserve. What did we deserve? When we were under the lordship of Satan, we deserved hell. We deserved death. God redeemed us out of that, placed us in Christ, in grace. He did that. And how he's given us the adoption into the family and the inheritance that awaits. 
the inheritance that awaits. And that's the inheritance we're going to talk about today. The doctrine of eternal inheritance. God in eternity past determined that he would choose us. God in eternity past predetermined or predestined our destiny. God in the past justified us. God in the past redeemed us. God also in the past gave us an inheritance. Why do I emphasize past? When you talk about inheritance, most of us think about inheritance being a physical thing on earth. Someone in our family has something that upon their death they're going to leave to us. And most of us think the better we are to that person, the better chance we have of getting that inheritance. Isn't that true? In other words, you often read about the family. There's two or three kids in the family and one of them goes off and does their own thing. And when it comes time to open that will and read it, they're nowhere to be found. They're nowhere to be found because they haven't been there loving on that person or being a part. So we apply that exact same philosophy to the inheritance that's talked about in the Word. That inheritance that we read about this morning. But keep in mind, that inheritance from God was given to you before you existed. There's not a thing you can do on this earth to gain more or to lose it. Just as assuredly as you can't lose your salvation, you can't lose the inheritance. It's not about what you do. Keep in mind your attendance in church, your your work in the community, your love of those around you, the sharing of the gospel, all of those things are good things. But those things don't change your salvation and they don't change your inheritance. Why do you do them then? You do them because God saved you. You do them because God's given you inheritance. You do them because God first loved you. You don't do them to gain salvation. You don't do them to gain inheritance. You don't do them to gain God's favor. That's all been done in the past. And we as Christians have a tendency to think we have to earn something from God. But you notice it tells us in the scripture we read this morning that that was all done in eternity past. So it brings up a couple of questions to me. A couple of questions about that inheritance. Back in in verse 11 of Ephesians there, chapter 1, where we just read, it says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance. If you remember when you were here last week, we talk about that, we talked about that have obtained, that have obtained being an heirist uh, tense, where it's a past tense, that thing that we've already obtained this inheritance, and it's already been done for us. And it says that inheritance was predestined according to the purpose of him, according to his will. We're going to use that as a launching point, that verse as a launching point to see what Paul is telling us in verse 13 and 14. I wrote right at the top of my notes, today we will finish the longest single sentence in the Bible. I'm going to have to scratch that out because we're not going to get anywhere close. But what we're going to talk about this morning is the first of three questions. There are three questions that come to mind to me when I think about that inheritance. Number one, who receives this inheritance? That's first and foremost what we have to answer for ourselves. Number two, what exactly is that inheritance? And number three, how should that inheritance affect our life today? So let's look at number one. Who receives the inheritance? Back in verse 11, it starts off like this. It says, in him. If you remember and you've been here, that phrase comes through in many, many places uh, within uh, Paul's writings here in verse 4. He says, within him. In the end of verse 4, he says it again in him. He talks about being in love. He moves through. It talks about in Christ. There's just several places he's emphasizing this in him. Well, what is the in him? Who is the him? If you look from verse 11 back to verse 10, which is where it designates the him, the him there is called a Christ because it says in Christ. Well, what does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to, to be a part of or be in something? In this particular case, it's those who God has chosen. 
See, because he started off when he was back in verse 4. He was talking about his choosing those, choosing you to be in Christ, pre-selected to be a part of Christ. And he takes and chooses you and he gives you the faith to believe in Jesus Christ. See, God didn't just choose you and leave you on your own. Not only did he choose you, he gave you the faith to understand your sin. To understand that you were lost in sin and heading to hell. And he gave you the faith to believe that there was a way out. And that way out was his son, Jesus Christ, who he also gave to hang upon a cross for you. You see the work of God in this? You see in what happens that in him are those who respond in faith to that message that was given to them. That message of what? It goes on to, to tell us down in, in uh, 13. It says, In Him you've also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. You've heard the word because it tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There is no other message about no other Savior except the Savior that's mentioned in the word. The word of God. If anyone presents any other gospel, as Paul says, and and Peter and those guys says, if anyone comes to you with another gospel, another message, that message is a lie. He says, even if it is me. He says, even if I present to you another gospel other than the gospel of the fact that you are a sinner, and that because you are a sinner, you're headed for hell, and there's only one way out, No matter what you hear on talk shows, no matter what you hear the world say, there is one way out. And that one way out of the path to hell is Jesus Christ. God says there is one gift, there is one way, a spotless lamb has to be slain for your sin. And when God looked around, there was no other spotless lamb but his own begotten son, Jesus Christ. The only person to ever walk this earth and never sin. He walked this earth to prove it could be done. He walked this earth to be that spotless lamb and he hung upon that cross and shed his blood for your sins. See, for when he was killed upon that cross, he had not sinned. That blood that flowed from his body was perfect, sinless blood. And that blood was used to wash your sins clean. And see, when we talk about being in Christ, how do you get in Christ? You trust in the message of the gospel. You don't try to figure out, well, if God does the choosing, what part do I have? Because the Bible plainly teaches both. The Bible teaches that he chooses you before the foundation of the earth, but he says, all who come to me, I will not turn away. So both of those things are taught. If you remember when we talked about the doctrine of election, I talked about it being like two railroad tracks. Both of those railroad tracks are true. And both of those railroad tracks never intersect. Because if they intersect, what do you have? A train crash. And see, there's a truth of God choosing you on one track. There's a truth that you must respond in faith to that choosing on the opposite track. And I had someone just last week say, well, why can't we reason that? It's a word called faith. If you in your own mind could understand how God saved you, it wouldn't take any faith whatsoever to believe it. If it didn't take faith, it wouldn't be of God. And if it's not of God, it doesn't work. Why do those things always run parallel? Why do those things confuse us? Why is there a tension between them? Because you must trust in faith that what God tells you in the Word is true. And the truth of the Word is there's one way to heaven, and it's to be in Jesus Christ. You come to do that by surrendering your all, by turning over all, not part, not a piece, not by walking an aisle, not by going into a baptismal pool and getting wet. You surrender. 
You surrender the lordship of your life, no longer to do what Satan calls upon you to do, but to follow solely, completely, wholly in Jesus Christ. That's being in Him. You can't partially be in. You can't have one leg in and one leg out. You can't play the hokey pokey with salvation. You're either all in or you're all out. If ever in your description of salvation you say, but, everything that follows the but is going to send you to hell. It's either all in or all out. That's what it means to be in Christ. See, John 1.3 gives us a pretty picture of that. John 1. Actually, we'll just start in John 1.1. It's such a beautiful picture. Gospel of John, chapter 1. I'm just going to read and not make much comment on it because I think it comments for itself. It says this in John 1. Chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And he's talking about the deity of Christ. He moves on to say, All things were made through Him, and without Him was made, uh, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Why? Because they were under the rule of Satan. He goes on to say in verse 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. We know him as John the Baptist. This man came for a witness, to bear a witness of the light that all through him might believe. Talking about not through John the Baptist, but through that light. He was not the light. John was not the light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. But notice what it says in verse 9. It says, That was the true light hopefully capitalized in your Bible because it's talking about Jesus. So that was the true light, the true Jesus, which gives light to every man coming into the world. So every man that comes into the world somehow will know that Jesus is God, whether it's through creation, whether it's through witness from us, whether it's through the Word. He goes on to say, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What a beautiful picture of what it means to be in Christ. It means first to not be in the world. It means to be completely born again into God through the work of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture of of being chosen. But you know what? It talks about those who are in him there in Ephesians. But it also talks about that predestination in verse 11. When it says, we were predestined according to the purpose of him in Ephesians 1.11, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. (coughs) So what does it mean to be predestined? If you remember, we used a Greek word for it. Proorizo was the, was the word. Proorizo was the word there. And it means to limit in advance or, or to predetermine. To those whom God predetermined to be his sons through the adoption of Christ, those are the ones who are in him. You didn't one day just stumble down a path and decide, you know what? I think I want to be a Christian. No, God worked beautifully through his word, through the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to bring to your mind that you were in a world of darkness. And there was this light, as John said. There was this light in the darkness. 
And you are attracted to the light and the darkness because of the work in your heart of the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit brought to your mind the fact that you were on a path that led to deeper darkness. Yet off somewhere in that darkness, you could see this light, this light burning. John so beautifully tells us that that light is Jesus Christ. See, into our hearts came this understanding that we needed this light to see in this darkness. And it's by the predetermination of God that you were led to that light. And that light became your own, became your own Savior, became the Savior of the world. He died to be the Savior of the world. But personally, because your place in Christ is personal. It can't be done for you by your parents. It can't be done for you by your Sunday school teacher. It can't be done for you by your pastor. It's between you and God. If you choose hell instead of heaven, it's your choice. It's personal. You won't get to the prison bars of hell and say, but my mama prayed for me because they're not going to care. You're not going to get there and say, but I taught Sunday school for 40 years because they're not going to care. For some, they stand behind a pulpit today as lost as they can be, and they're going to get there and say, but I preached the word for 40 years, and they say, great, but I don't care. Because those things don't save you, your personal relationship with Jesus Christ does. And God's predetermined that that light would come on in your life when in faith you believe that. You believe that it's a one-on-one relationship between you and Jesus. For you see, if only one of you were a sinner, If God had written in the Bible that all were going to heaven except one, and it was one of you, Jesus would have still crawled upon that cross. He would have still shed his precious blood if it was only one. And that relationship has to be personal. You see, both of those things are objective truths that they've given in the word that God's given. That we have to be in him. He's chosen us for that. And that we're predestined for that. Both of those are given facts. But in the section of scripture we're in, in verse 13 of Ephesians 1, he gives us a subjective understanding also. And that subjective understanding comes in verse 13b, the second part of verse 13. The whole verse reads, In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. That's the objective. That's the understanding that's coming to believe. And he moves on to say, Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The one question I'm asked the most by those who profess to be Christians is, How do I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm one of the elect, that I'm one of the chosen, that I'm God's, that I've been adopted? There's your answer. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. In the point in time that Paul wrote this, the seal was one of the most important things within the government, within the community, within society. I bring your recollection back to a stone rolled across a tomb one morning. It was rolled across in front of this tomb. And if you remember, the Pharisees went to the higher-ups and said, we fear that someone's going to steal the body because they've said that he would rise again. And what did they ask the officials to do? To place a seal upon that stone 
to place a seal, to take hot wax and melt it and place a signet ring of a higher authority in that seal. And to break that seal meant death. It was the way they sealed their documents, their letters. It was just as good as our signatures today when we place them on a line and they're stamped by a a notary public that says, yes, this is true, but this seal was placed that to break that seal was the curse of death. You see, it tells us here, verse 13, that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be sealed by the Holy Spirit? You see, whenever you were saved, it tells us that we are filled with the Holy Spirit of promise. There is one feeling. For those of you who may have grown up in another denomination, grown up in, in a Pentecostal Free Will Baptist Church, you've heard the statements, there's a second feeling or a third feeling or different feelings. And I've had them ask me, said, hey, you're a pastor. Have you ever had the second feeling? I said, yes, I've had the first, the second, the hundredth, the millionth. It all happened one time. When Jesus Christ became Lord of my life, I was filled with the Holy Spirit. Does it mean I'm going to run around speaking in tongues and jump in pews? I don't think that's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It tells us pretty plainly what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit and the Word. And maybe we'll get to that, but it obviously won't be today. But it says this, it says the promise of Jesus when he left us. When Jesus left us, when he went back to heaven, when he left us here on our own, he promised us something. Do you remember what that promise that he gave to the disciples as well as you because of the extension of knowing him as Lord and Savior? A comforter. The comforter, the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. Why? You see, because as long as Jesus was in their presence, they felt like they were in him. He knew the minute that he left. They would feel lost. How did he keep them from feeling lost? How did he give them the assurance that they had truly been saved by being in his presence? He sent this comforter. And John, if you'll flip with me there real fast, and we'll end partway through the message on this. But in John chapter 14, John chapter 14, he gives these promises. These are promises we can hold to. In John chapter 14, verse 16, it says this, or actually starting in 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. In 16, I will pray the Father... And he will give you another helper that he may be, that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Do you see the beautiful picture? Do you see the beautiful picture of being in Christ and the assurance because you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you? See, when Christ left, he didn't leave you an orphan, he says. In verse 26, he says this, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. you see the work of the Holy Spirit in your life? How do you understand what the Word says? How do you understand what God tells you? The Holy Spirit living within you brings to your remembrance those things that Christ said when he walked this earth. 
He brings to your remembrance. He also is with you through times of trouble. Punk and the others who have gone through recent health situations can tell you the peace that God gives far surpasses the peace of anything else. A doctor can tell you, family can tell you, the church can tell you, knowing that God has you in the palm of his hand because that Holy Spirit communes with your spirit is peace you cannot imagine. If you have strife in your life, if you're torn at the heart about something, chances are you're not at peace with that Holy Spirit. He goes on in chapter 15 of John in verse 26 and he says this. He says, but when the helper comes who I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. What else does he say the Holy Spirit is going to do when he indwells you? That Holy Spirit, that helper, that should give you a clue of what he's going to do. He's going to be a helper. He's going to be the spirit of truth. He's going to speak truth into your heart. And he's going to testify of Jesus Christ. He's going to testify of Jesus Christ in your life. If you're a believer, your spirit's going to know that you're a believer because the Spirit of God is going to testify to your spirit that Jesus Christ is your Lord. He's going to give you peace that your eternity is sealed, that your inheritance has been given to you because the Holy Spirit is going to tell your spirit you're one in Him. But because you're one in him, he goes on to say there in verse 27, and you also will bear witness. What else will the Holy Spirit do in your heart? He will well up within you the joy of your salvation so full, so overflowing that you'll be a witness. You'll be the light in the world. Remember when we read in the first part of John? That the light will come and make men light in the world. You being filled with the Holy Spirit are that man and woman. Because the Holy Spirit indwells you and comforts you and guides you and teaches you things, that flows out of your life to a dark world. You now become a light. Because that Holy Spirit indwells you. Because we have been with Jesus, we fellowship with that Spirit. Because we know Him as our Lord and Savior, we're one with that Spirit. We're one with Christ. How do you know you've been filled with the Spirit? Now we enter Spirit filling does not equate to being perfect or sinless. So many Christians misunderstand what it means to be filled with the Spirit. They think, if the Spirit truly fills me, I'll never sin. I believe it's written back in the first John, if you say you do not sin, you are a liar. That book is written to believers. See, God knows, as long as we're in this world, we'll have that tension, that struggle with our old master. The old master doesn't like being displaced. He doesn't like being kicked out. And there'll be that tension. But you know what happens when the Holy Spirit indwells you? You don't become perfect, but you sure feel awful bad when you're not. You see, he convicts your heart. The presence of the Spirit in your heart convicts you of that sin. No longer can you sin and not know it. No longer can you sin and not desire forgiveness. If you walk around with perpetual sin in your life over and over and over the same sin, even if you sit in this church on Sunday morning, I would question your salvation. And I say that to you in love. Because if you can sin against a holy God and your heart doesn't hurt because of it, the Holy Spirit's not going to be there. And if that Holy Spirit's not there, you're not saved. Because each of us who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior are filled with that Spirit. You know, spirit feeling is evidence because of another thing also. The hungering 
and thirsting for righteousness. What's missing in our church today? What is the one thing that's missing in our church today? Righteousness. Righteousness, holiness, the desire to be like Christ. When's the last time that even down to the minutest thing that you've done, you said, God, how can I honor you through this? When I think of the most mundane things we do, the eating and drinking of meals every day. And you know, the Bible tells us that even through eating and drinking, we should glorify God. It should be to his glory. When's the last time you stopped and thought about the simplest of things? How you drive your car. There's many of us that may put the fish symbol on the back of our car. I'd love to go by with a razor blade and scrape it off a bunch of yours. I've seen you drive. You're not being a good witness. And it's tough, isn't it? When people are cutting you off, you just want to blow the horn and just tell them, if you'll pull over for a minute, we'll have a discussion about your driving, sir. But you should be saying, if you'll pull over for a minute, I'll tell you who Jesus is. You see, because discussing or driving with them is not going to fix their eternity, but telling them who your Jesus is will. When's the last time you set yourself aside and thought about that righteousness, wanting to be righteous in Christ? Do you desire to read his word? I don't know, dude. Yeah, we did change the number. It's been on a steady decline since I mentioned it. Some of you guys don't come on Wednesday night, and we pray for you by name, call you out by name on Wednesday nights because you don't come. I was kidding, but we may start. Um, but anyhow, I mentioned the other Wednesday night. Ken Smith, that preached revival for, for us, made a very interesting observation that I had never paid attention to, and it had been right in front of my face the whole time. Do you see the last number on the board? A 12. How many people would you dare say here is this morning? Let's call it 50, because I can't count higher than that. So we'll just go 50. So out of 50 of you, which actually 33, because this was taken in Sunday school. So out of 33 people, 12 read their Bible. How many of you, by raising your hand, would tell me you would love to know what God has in store for your life? Anybody? Anybody like to know? More than 12 people raised their hand. You're waiting for an audible voice to speak from heaven to tell you what's in store for your life, and you're going to be waiting a very long time. A long time. God's spoken. He's spoken between the covers of this. It's called a Bible. Even with the notes that fall out, it's still called a Bible. If you're not reading this on a daily basis, you're never going to know the will of God for your life. It's embarrassing to me to think that we show up every week and we spend an hour or so together trying to discern what God is working in our church and our lives and how God can better our lives and make us more like Him. Yet we leave and we never pick this up again till the next Sunday morning. Have you figured out the importance of the Word in my life? Have you figured it out yet? That I never give you my opinion. I've had people say, we don't know much about you. And I said, you probably won't unless you invite me to dinner. Because this pulpit is used to tell you what God says. Why? Because you won't pick it up and read it for yourself. Do you desire to read the Word? Do you desire to pray? Do you desire to spend time on your knees before a holy God, listening in prayer and praying? thought it interesting, just the other week we had a prayer service on Wednesday night for those that were sick. And I mentioned about praying the Bible back to God. It was so neat. We opened the floor up and prayed. One young lady put the Bible open and prayed back to God. And what a moving thing to hear the Word of God prayed to Him. It's an awesome thing. Do you desire to be in His house and with His people at all times? That's another way you can tell that 
the Holy Spirit has filled your heart. Do you wake up on Sunday morning going, well, I guess I better go because they're going to expect it. Or do you wake up early saying, I sure wish it would hurry up and get to be 10 o'clock so I can be in Sunday school because I want to be with God's people. Is being in church required to be a Christian? No, it's not. Absolutely not. You don't have to come. Doesn't matter to me one way or the other. But your presence tells God a lot about you. A lot about you. And I guarantee you this, if you don't attend church on a regular basis, and I'm talking more than Sunday morning. I'm talking every time the doors are open. If you're not with God's people, your life's going to be in turmoil more than it's going to be peaceful. Because most time, God speaks to you not only through His Word, but through your brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you're never here for that fellowship, you never hear the voice of God. I leave this place every time we're together blessed by you. You say, we come to hear you preach. I come to hear you. I hear you in your singing. I hear you in your fellowship. I hear you as you ask me questions. You touch my heart every week. I could preach to empty pews every week. It would be the same thing. I'd still be preaching. It's the gathering of his body that God blesses. So are you filled with the Spirit? Next week we'll talk about what it means to be filled with the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. But I ask you this this morning. Does your life give evidence that you are filled with the Spirit? You see, because to gain the inheritance, to gain those things God has set forth for you, you must first be in Him. So I ask you this this morning. I'll ask Kay to come and be ready to do our invitation this morning. And I ask if you've got a zippered Bible cover, just lay that down there on the pew, if you don't mind, and don't zip that up for me this morning. I hate to do it at an invitation, but I'll tell you, I think Satan designed those things just to distract those who are hearing the Word of God in their heart. Because it seems like we always zip them up right at the invitation time. And you never know when there's somebody sitting next to you that goes, you know what? Brother Roger, you're right. I've attended church all my life. I've been a part of Sunday school. I may have even been on a deacon board. But I've never come to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And you know how I know that, Brother Roger? I don't have that desire for the Word. I don't pray on a regular basis. I don't desire to be amongst the people. I come out of obligation. If that's you this morning, you can change that. Hear the still small voice of God saying, I hung my son upon a cross for you. Not that you would check things off your list by doing them, but that you would love me. You know you love God when he flows out of your heart. How does he flow out of your heart? He fills your heart with the Holy Spirit. This morning you examine your heart. If you would pray with me. Most gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, dying for my sins and rising again that I would have an inheritance, a future with you. And through this study, Father, I have come to really be thankful for the filling of your Holy Spirit. For it's through that filling that I commune, I fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's through that spirit that I feel you in my life. It's a subjective way that I know that you are my God. So this morning I ask this of you. You move in the quietness of this place amongst those who are gathered here. And you bring to their remembrance that time that they were saved. That time that they were filled with the Spirit. And this morning they'll be sure to thank you for that. For those that can't remember ever having a personal relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ. I ask this of you this morning, Father. You allow your Holy Spirit. You move your Holy Spirit in their lives to bring them to the point of repentance. Be merciful, Father. 
Don't give them what they deserve. Be gracious. Give them what they don't deserve. The blood that flowed from the side of your son, Jesus Christ. This morning we thank you and ask that you work your will as you see fit in this place. All this we pray in the name of your precious Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.